Let goods and kindred go, this mortal life also. The body they may kill, God's truth abideth still. His kingdom is forever. We just sang that together. You remember? (laughs) It's good to pay attention while we sing because there is much to be learned, to much to glory in while we are singing these songs. And this is this, this song, this hymn written by Martin Luther in what, 1529? <laughs> Nearly 500 years ago. And yet we sh- we're still singing it today. Because it's not, not because Martin Luther abides forever, but the truth of God's word abides forever. The truth that Martin Luther discovered is the truth that we're still discovering together. And we're seeing it, we're learning it, we're glorying in it. And the same Jesus that was back there converting Martin Luther, the monk, then the reformer, the same God converting us, converting our souls, reforming us from this dying world. His kingdom is forever. And that's really, in a nutshell, what we're going to be talking about today. Turn your Bibles to Matthew. We've been in Matthew for some time. Matthew chapter 6. And we're going to be talking about just this subject. Let goods and kindred go. This mortal life also, let it go. Loosen your grip. The body they may kill. What is that? What is that to us? God's truth abides still. His kingdom is forever. Kill the body. His kingdom is forever and I get to be part of it. So I'm going to let everything go that I hold dear. None of it matters. Not really. In so much that it serves the kingdom of God. Matthew chapter 6. Starting in verse 19, it says, Do not lay for, up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. The lamp of the body is the eye. If, therefore, your eye is good, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If, therefore, the light that is in you is darkness, how great is that darkness. No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will be loyal to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. (coughs) Lord, I am insufficient to declare the truths of these things in a way that would rightly represent your glory that would rightly represent the beauty of the kingdom. 
Lord, I just pray that your spirit would be heavy upon us. Heavy not for the sake of captivity, but for the sake of freedom. That we might hold loosely to the things of this life. And grab hold of eternal life. Not being chained to the the dust of this earth by the devil and his schemes. Schemes that are often not bad. But schemes nonetheless to keep us from your eternal kingdom. Lord, you are our sufficiency. May you be sufficient to teach us your word today. In Jesus' name, amen. Here we see, as I read in verses 19 to 20, he gives us something not to do, and then he tells us something to do. Let me read those again. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth. Start there. Stop there. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth. Short and sweet. To the point. I mean, that's not hard to understand. Do not. I mean, if you're putting this into the Ten Commandments, thou shalt not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth. Is that not profound in and of itself? But yet, to what goes our concern? To what goes the majority of our life? Making money, making houses, cars, building a life that we can live in relative comfort, in relative ease, storing up for ourselves an account for the future when we can relax. Jesus says, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth. On earth, that's where moth and rust destroy. That's where thieves break in and steal. He's not saying don't lay them up on earth because somebody's going to come and steal them. That's not his point. The point by which he says where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal is to make the point that these things are futile. They don't last. He's telling us the relative worthlessness of these things. You know, you think about in scriptures, I'm not going to go to different passages that talk about this, but in one place he talks about the despicable man whose God is his belly. And that's kind of a picture of a man who literally worships food. Food, which is the epitome of something that is there and then it's gone. It's there in front of you, you eat it, turns to rubbish. But yet, we as people, we idolize the things that are easily consumed and are gone tomorrow. We live our lives, we put forth all of our effort trying to get these things that are gone. We are so passionate about getting these things, acquiring a life that is gone in just a matter of moments, relatively speaking. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth. That stuff's futile. That stuff doesn't last. But then this this confuses the natural mind because we think, well, what else is there? I mean, if I got something that lasted my whole life long, 
Well, what else is there? So this very statement assumes that there's something else. There's something that lasts longer than your life that you can have. But my life doesn't last longer than my life, (laughs) says the natural mind. My life doesn't last longer than my life. What I can acquire here, that's what I get to enjoy. That's what I get to have. I can't have stuff that lasts beyond the grave. But is that true? This very statement assumes otherwise. It assumes that the natural mind is not correct. And it's assumption that when you die, it's over. He goes on and he says in verse 20, this contrast to the temporal pursuits. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven. Okay, put this into the Ten Commandments. Thou shalt lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven. It's a command. He's telling us what to do. He's giving us guidance. Would we forsake the guidance of Jesus himself coming from his own mouth? Do not lay up treasures here. No, lay up treasures in heaven. Why? Where neither moth nor rust destroys where thieves do not break in and steal again. Is he, is he giving us good investment advice? You know, we, we like to pick investments that aren't easily squandered, that, don't, um, that, are, that are good risks. Well, this is a good risk that he's talking to us about, but what he's saying here is that the treasures in heaven, they don't go away. They don't leave you. They're, they're going to be there. Nothing, nobody can remove them. They're eternal. They're infinite. Starkly different than this futile life that we're living and putting all of our passions and resources into building a name for ourselves, a life for ourselves, getting our own way. For what? Food. For our way, our rules. The way we see things, the way we do things, the way we like things. But it all ends. All of it ends. Therefore, would it not make sense to not store it up? Are you going to, if you are an investor, are you going to go and purchase an investment that you know you're going to lose? You already know you're going to lose. Jim Elliot um, famously said, He is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain that which he can never lose. And it's really, it's a, it's, it makes sense, does it not? And Jim Elliot, if, we know, if you know his story, he died being murdered by the very people he evangelized to in Ecuador when he was, I'm trying to think if anybody can correct me, maybe he was 29 maybe, 29 years old. He and four other men down in Ecuador trying to preach the gospel to these people that have never, barely ever met a white man or his Christianity or anything like that. They murdered him. He never saw a single soul saved. Later in time, that entire um, village came to Christ through the ministry of the, the wives of these men that died and their children but he is a living, he is 
living example of the very statement that he gave us. He is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain that which he can never lose. So what if we die being 29? I think David Brainerd died when he was 29. Leading many of the Native Americans to Jesus Christ. Many people, many missionaries of old that were famous did not live very long. (laughs) They submitted themselves to conditions that did not accommodate a long life. Because they were not interested in laying up for themselves treasures on this earth. They were more interested in that which accommodated heaven, eternal life. And we, Jesus gives us this, opens this subject with this contrast. Don't lay up treasures on earth. If you lay up treasures on earth, you're not going to be very useful for the kingdom. Because you're going to be, you know, similar advice that Paul gave. Paul told, hey, we're in the middle of persecution here. If you're single, stay single. Don't get married. Because it's easier to serve the kingdom when you don't have to deal with family matters. He was telling this to people who were in the middle of some hard times. Being persecuted. Constantly having to be on the run. Constantly in danger for their lives. Why did he tell them this? Why? For the sake of the kingdom. You can serve God better when you're not weighed down in the midst of all your running around. Now, he wasn't speaking against the value of family life, but it's the same concept here. We, when we store up for ourselves treasures here, we are weighed down by them. We are weighed down. Why? Because we have to deal with them. We have to protect them. We have to keep them. We have to, we have to steward them. Just like we have to steward our families, our children, our young children. There is so much, I'll tell, I'm, I don't regret having my children, I love my children, but you guys, those of you who have had children, you know that when you have lots of children, there's stuff that you could do that you can't do because you have these young children that you have to take care of. That's not a bad thing, that's just what it is. And Jesus is telling us, in this passage, treasures on this earth weigh you down because you have to steward them. You have to take care of them, protect them. And they're kind of like Solomon's wives sometimes who tore his attention from God so that he served false idols. He was the wisest man who ever lived. If anybody who could have accommodated his situation, I'm not going to go into the whole thing, it, could have been, it would have been Solomon, the wisest man who ever lived. Yet he fell to idolatry. Because he was accommodating. He had all these 700 wives from various parts of the world who served various gods, weighing him down with their desire to worship their gods. Okay, okay, I'll build you some shrines. Okay, I'll build you some high places. He had to take care of them. And we, when we lay up treasures on earth, we have to take care of them. They weigh us down. They're a weight to us often if we have not devoted them to the Lord. 
and are actively using them for the good of God's kingdom. Play up for yourselves treasures in heaven. If you do that, even the treasures on this earth will not be your treasures here on this earth. If your treasure is in heaven, then even that which you gain in this life will be used for heaven. They will not be consumed upon upon your passions and desires. They will be used for the kingdom. In verse 21 he says, For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. What he's saying here is, your center of longing and desire will dwell in the place where your treasure is. You've heard the statement, home is where the heart is. It's the same. Home is where the heart is. Do you have a home in heaven? Well, then your heart will be there. Your heart will not be here amongst your things. Lost in your piles of goods and desires and passions. Where's your center? You know, if you've ever been to a yoga class, they'll say, find your center. Now, this is not yoga class, and we use this completely differently here. But we're familiar with the statement, find your center. The center of your desire. The center of your passion. Where your treasure is, that where your heart be also. Is that center around which, from which all of life comes Where is it? Is it in heaven? Or is it down here? All that we gain, all that we seek to acquire, all that we seek to learn, what's it for? What's it for? Why? What is it producing? What are you doing with it? That's telling you where your treasure is, whether it's in heaven or whether it's here on this earth. Verse 22 and verse 23, these verses are a little bit more difficult to distinguish because he's being a little vague. Jesus says, The lamp of the body is the eye. Therefore, if your eye is good, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If therefore the light that is in you is darkness, how great is that darkness? And you see here, this is a similar contrast to how we started this sermon. It's a similar concept. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven. If your eye is good, you will be full of light. If your eye is bad, you will be full of darkness. He's still talking about treasure. He's still talking about the passions of this life. What we give ourselves to, what we devote ourselves to. The lamp, he's talking about our center. The lamp of our body is the eye. What attracts you? You know, with, with these eyes, we sense things through vision. Things that are beautiful, things that are ugly, things that are desirable, things that are undesirable. And he's saying, Jesus is saying, the lamp of the body is the eye. If your eye is good, your whole body will be full of light. Here he's teaching us, if our eye is up here, pointed upwards to heaven, then you're going to be full of light. Everything's going to be clear to you. Everything, so to speak. You'll have clarity. You'll have direction. 
You will not be weighed down by your possessions. You will not be weighed down by the harsh things that come upon you. If you lose everything, what is that to you? Your eye is up here. Take the world and give me Jesus. But if your eye is dark, if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. We've known dark times. Times of loss. Perhaps we've seen it in ourselves or among family members who have endured great loss. And some people are defeated by loss. Their whole life becomes darkness. Their whole life becomes sorrow because of their loss. And this is what Jesus is saying. If your eye is bad, you will be full of darkness. You will be lost. You cannot find your way because your eye is bad. What you're seeing, what you're perceiving is not something that can help you. Your money does not care about you. Your food does not care about you. Your house does not care about you. The things that you've acquired in this life do not care about you. Your family can care about you. But your family is often lost as well. And can hardly offer you good light. Sometimes they can if their eye is good. But we are lost if our eye is bad. As Jesus said, we're full of darkness. When our lusts, when our pursuits, when our longings, when the only things we find beautiful are the things that are here on this earth, rather than the things that are above, we are lost. For the things on this earth cannot guide us there, outside of the working of the Spirit. Even the words that I'm speaking to you today cannot bring you to God. That must be the work of the Spirit that he often uses these words. So if our eye is not up, if we're not looking to Jesus, we are lost. If our treasure is not at his right hand, we are lost. We can comfort ourselves. There are a great many ways in this life that we can comfort ourselves with these things that our eye sees, that are attractive, that are delightful, that are delicious, that are enjoyable, that are fun, that are exciting. There are a great many ways that we can accommodate darkness and make it feel okay. Can feel okay. Because we're accommodating it still with our bad eye. And these things, they're not all bad things. It's not bad to make money. It's not bad to build a life. It's not bad to have a nice home. It's not bad to drive nice cars. It's not bad to enjoy ice cream or a movie. <laughs> Hallelujah! <laughs> Finally, we get some rights to some things. <laughs> these things are not bad. But if these are our sure delight, then we are lost. If this is the only thing we have to hope for in this life, I look at this dash between my birth and my death date, and I think, what can I fill that with so that I can be happy? Then great is our darkness. If that's our mind, if that's all we have, then great is our darkness. We have no hope. If all that we're doing is just trying to accommodate this, the span of time between birth and death, then what are we doing? 
We're not laying up for ourselves treasures beyond death. In verse 24, Jesus says, Nobody, no one, can serve two masters. No one. Let's think about that for a second. Sometimes, don't we find ourselves trying to get the best of both worlds? We try to be our religious selves. We like to be, you know, be good Christians, but we also like to go and please ourselves with all the things that the world has to offer. You know, we try to, we try to have it both ways. We try to devote ourselves to, to both at the same time. I'm going to go to church. I'm going to be a good person. I'm going to follow some of these rules. I'm going to talk the talk, walk the walk. You know, I'm going to go to these functions. I'm going to participate, and I'm going to even make some sacrifices for the sake of Christianity or whatever it is. But you know what? When I go home, though, I'm going to go and I'm going to um, indulge in the pleasures of life. I'm going to make money my highest pursuit because that's where happiness comes from, right? I'm going to go buy all the nice things, eat the nice foods, have the nice house, marry the nice wife or the nice husband. And I'm going to build this life and I'm going to put my kids in the best education and I'm going to make sure that this life is built. It's built. It's good. It's full. In Christianity, Jesus Christ just becomes another idol on the shelf of idolatry. We treat him like that. He's just another idol on the shelf next to all these other things that we love and that we want to pursue and that we long for and are passionate about. He's just another thing that we use to make ourselves feel good about who we are. This Jesus. We say he's the one true way, but he's just, on, he's just another piece of yummy pie at the Thanksgiving banquet. He's just the one little part of all these delightful things that we're partaking in, trying to be happy, trying to make ourselves happy, because we just want to be happy. We just want to be fulfilled. Jesus is fulfilling, and so is money, and so is pleasure, and so is all these other things. I'm not really pursuing eternal life. I'm pursuing fulfillment. I'm fulfilling happiness. So Jesus is just an idol. He's a false god even though he's the one true God. But the way we serve him, we serve him as though he's a false God. Just another idol on the shelf. No one can serve two masters, Jesus said. These are are not just ramblings of an arrogant young man. No one can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will be loyal to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. Do you despise the earth, the carnality? Do you despise it? If you do not despise it, then perhaps you are trying to serve two masters. If you cannot wait for this to be gone and you be ushered into the presence of God but rather you spend every waking moment being passionate about the stuff here, perhaps you're trying to serve two masters. You're trying really hard, and that's why life is so confusing. That's why we get frustrated. Because we're trying to have it both ways. Trying to have both. I'm trying to be married to the world and married to Jesus. 
But in the midst, it's all just adultery. No, you must be loyal to one. Pick one and be loyal to it. If you'd like to pick the earth, that's your choice. Be loyal to it and you'll be happy. You'll find some joy here, but you'll die and that will be the end of your joy. Try to enjoy yourself. If you have no interest in being loyal to Jesus Christ, then be loyal to the world. Jesus himself said to the Pharisees, make friends of yourselves amongst the people of the earth by by means of uh, unrighteous gain. Jesus told the Pharisees that. That's all you have. That's all that's available to you if you're not going to be loyal to me, the Messiah. So go have at it. Have some fun. Because that's all you get. There will be nothing waiting for you in the heavenly abode. But the longing here, the desire here, my, my exhortation here, be loyal to Jesus. To the po- so loyal to the point that everything else looks like loss. Everything else looks like it's against you. Everything else is a burden weighing on you that you can't wait to get rid of. You'll steward it as long as you need to, but you just can't wait to be free. So that you can have the one that you've been longing for. Being loyal to against all odds. You cannot serve God and mammon. Mammon is often translated money. Really it's just a word that is associated with just the carnality of the world. The stuff that's flesh. The stuff that's earth. Carnality doesn't, we associate the word carnality with sexuality, but that's not what it is. It's just earthiness. Stuff that's here. You cannot serve the stuff that's here and serve God at the same time. You must be loyal to one. Pick one. Go after it. If you're going to pick Christ, then go after Him. Go after Him. Like there's nothing else to live for. Like nothing else matters. Go after Him. Pick Him. Be loyal to Him. Devote yourself. That's the only way to live the Christian life. Is with devotion. All else is just trying to serve God and mammon at the same time. Or serving mammon. You must pick one. And I urge you today to look to Jesus. And to devote yourself to Him. I have a story that I'm going to tell you after I read a couple passages out of the Scriptures. In Psalm 90. Psalm 90. Verses 3 to 5. In verse 12. says, You turn man to destruction and say, Return, O children of of men. Now something about this verse. You turn man to destruction. Destruction here simply means the end. A finishing, a completion. It's over with. And when he says, You return, O children of men, the word for men there is often translated Adam. What he's talking about here, You turn man to the end and say, Return, O children of Adam. Return, O children of Adam. What's... What does Adam return to? Dust. 
He's putting in our mind the futility of life, that it comes to an end, that we all return to dust. Life will soon be over. And then he says in verse 4, For a thousand years in your sight are like yesterday, when it is past, and like a watch in the night. You carry them away like a flood. They are like a sleep in the morning. They are like grass which grows up. And I want to key in on this, and you'll see this story that I'm about to tell you is going to actually kind of um, spring off of this. But he says here in, in verse 5, They are like a sleep in the morning. They are like grass which grows up. Now this should be translated, they are like sleep in the morning. And then, like grass that grows up. In the morning is supposed to be coupled with, they are like a sleep. In the morning. Showing that. It's like when you wake up. You're like, your life is like the memory of a dream. And when your life is over. Have you ever had a dream and you wake up and you remember it. And you remember parts of it. You don't remember the whole thing. There are some elements of it that like, I think I've dreamed about something. Oh yeah, that's it. That's what it was. I dreamed about this. And sometimes you have a dream that's really fantastic. Maybe you win the lottery in your dream. And you're just like, ah, I'm rich. And you're super happy. And then you wake up and you're like, oh, I'm not rich. <laughs> you're, but you're, you want to be in that dream again. Or you have a bad dream. And you wake up and it's a relief. That you're out of that dream. But nevertheless, however that is, we all know what it's like to dream and to wake up and to kind of remember that dream. And then, in a way, I kind of see this. When we die, we are translated into um, the hereafter. Our life, we'll remember it, but we'll remember it like a dream. It was soon past. And he says in verse 4, For a thousand years in your sight are like yesterday, when it's past. A dream, dreams are not bound to time. You could live uh, 10 years in a dream, but it all happened in one night. And with God, with, in the eternal abode, time doesn't really mean anything. When we die and we go to heaven, we'll remember our, our life like a dream. It was just, it was there, but now it's not there. And we'll perhaps think about, man, it was only a dream. Why did I give myself to that? Why did I do that? It was just a dream. If only I knew what I knew now. If only I saw things then, the way I saw them, or the way I see them now, that it's all past. And then I see that it's all just futile. That it was all just there to be gone. Our, our life is like when we die and we are translated. It'll just be like remembering a dream. So when we live our lives now, he says in verse 12, so teach us to number our days that we may gain a heart of wisdom. Let's think of our, try to think of your life now that you're living it, as though in the future it's just going to be a dream. None of this stuff is going to really matter, whether it's the hardship, the pain, or the good, and the wealth and the excess. None of it's really going to matter. It's just going to be like a dream. Maybe we should see it as a dream now. Live our life today in light of what it will be, when it's gone. And thereby, as the psalmist says, which it says here, the prayer of Moses, the man of God, teach us to number our days, that we may gain a heart of wisdom. What is he saying there? Teach us to number our days. Teach us to live like we are aware that it's going to be gone one day. Help us to live like we know that none of this is going to last so that we can 
Therefore, walk wisely while we yet live. Therefore, we should walk circumspectly, Paul says, not as fools, but wise, redeeming the time for the days are evil. When he says redeeming the time, he's saying buying it back. The world will claim all of your time. It will make you a slave to it, to serve it, to serve all the things that you have to take care of. And he's saying, no, take back your time from the world. Take it back. Take ownership of your time for the sake of God's kingdom. Because one day, as we learn the heart of wisdom through counting the number of our days, one day we will know that devoting ourselves to earthy things isn't really worth it. And we can see it now because we learn to number our days while we're alive. So now we can actually walk the way God wants us to walk. Now we can feel freer to go and devote ourselves to Jesus. To Jesus. Because we know through a heart of wisdom that only that which is done in the name of Jesus is ever going to last. I'm going to read you a story here. Rich introduced me to a book a while back called The Mansion by Henry Van Dyke. I'm not going to read you the whole book, but I have some excerpts here that I want to read to you. Henry Van Dyke was a a poet, author, um, I think he was a pastor for a little while, if I'm not mistaken. He wrote this story in 1911 called The Mansion. And he wrote it as an allegory to the subject that we're looking at in Scripture today. Living life for eternity's sake, rather than for for today's sake. And it tells of a man named John Waitman, who was a prestigious, wealthy, and respected man in his life. His son, however, had no taste for the life that his father lived. He respected his father, but he did not want to live like his father. He fought one day with his father about John Waitman's plan for this son to turn him into a wealthy and reputable man like he was. But the son did not want this life that his father had, and he would rather give his life to charitable deeds, the relief of the poor and needy. And he and his father ended their conversation in a rift. That night, John Waitman dreamed a dream that would change his life forever. He dreamed that he died and he went to heaven. He was there with people that he had known, none of which had made much of themselves in life, but they were good people who helped the needy, so much so that their own lives were discomforted. John did not question why these men were here, since he knew that they were good men. They were faithful to the church, just as he was. He, however had been more faithful to the church than any of these others. He was on the board of the church. He was on the board of the hospital. He was on the board of these charities. And he had given more money to the church than any of these people combined. Though he didn't question why these men were here, he certainly understood why he was there. The keeper of the gate to the heavenly city, which was nameless in this book, took the men and walked them into the city. He showed the other men to their mansions, which were much larger than John Waitman would have suspected they would be, since these men did not really seem to have accomplished much in their lives. He thought to himself that if these men are worthy of such large mansions, what was waiting for him? This great man. And the keeper of the gate continues with John Waitman to show him his mansion. And then Van Dyke writes, in quotes, 
It seems as though they had walked for miles and miles through the vast city, street after street of houses larger and smaller, gardens richer or poorer, but all full of beauty and delight. They came to a kind of suburb where there were many small cottages and plots of flowers, very lowly but bright and fragrant. And finally they reached an open field, bare and lonely looking. There were two or three little bushes in it, and the grass was sparse and thin. In the center of the field was a tiny hut, hardly big enough for a shepherd's shelter. It looked as if it had been built with discarded things, seemed to cling only to the suffer- by sufferance to the edge of the splendid city. This, said the keeper of the gate, is your mansion, John Waitman. Surely, sir, John stammered, there must be some mistake. There is no mistake, said the keeper of the gate. Here is your title and the record of your possessions in this place. But how could such a place be prepared for me, cried the man with a resentful tremor in his voice. For me, after my long and faithful service, is this suitable for a man so well known and devoted? Why have you not built it large and fair like the others? Well, this is all the material that you sent us, said the keeper of the gate. Now I know that you are mistaken. For all my life long, I have been doing things that must have supplied you with material. Have you not heard that I built a schoolhouse, the wing of a hospital, three small churches? And he would have continued. The keeper of the gate raised his hand and said, Wait, we know all of these things. They were not ill done, but they were marked and used for the foundation of the name and mansion of John Waitman in the world. Did you not plan them for that? Well, yes, Waitman replied. Perhaps I thought of them often in that way, but there are other things that I did for charity. Wait! replied the keeper of the gate. Were not all these deeds carefully recorded on earth, where they would add to your credit? They were not foolishly done. Verily, you have received your reward. Would you be paid twice? Perhaps I did acknowledge my own interest too much. But do they count for nothing? replied Waitman. Oh, yes, answered the keeper of the gate. They count for the world that you counted them in. But it does not belong to you here. We have used everything that you sent us here. Tell me then, replied Waitman, since my life is worth so little, how is it that I came here at all? Through the mercy of the king, replied the keeper. And how have I earned it, he murmured. Oh, it is never earned, only given. But how have I failed so miserably? What could I have done better? Only that which is truly given, answered the bell-like voice. Only that good which is done for the love of doing it. Only those plans in which the welfare of the others is the master thought. Only those labors in which the sacrifice is greater than the reward. Only those gifts in which the giver forgets himself altogether. These are the things the king never forgets. And because there were few of them in your life, you have little place here. At this point, John Whitman awoke from his dream, being profoundly changed. And he reconciled with his son. He ended up living out the rest of his few short years in true sincerity And this is, he wrote this as an allegory to the life of many good Christians. He was a pastor. He knew Christianity. He knew the people of God. And because he knew that, he also knew that they were given to pride, to arrogance, to self-sufficiency, and to thinking that the things that they're doing is going to add to them, to their reputation, to the way people think of them. To the way people esteem them with high honor. 
And as the keeper of the gate said in this story, those things were not ill done. It's not like you sinned in building churches and schools and hospitals. But your reward is counted exactly where you wanted it to be counted. You received your honor. You got your way. You did your things that you wanted to do. You may not have made money through these things, but you got your honor. You got your way. And so it's counted for you there. And then he goes on to, tell the, to make the point that if you want to earn treasures in heaven, if you want to build a place in heaven, then the material that is used is the material from those things that you did where the sacrifice outweighed the reward. The measure through which it was greater is, is precisely where the treasure in heaven has come from. Does that make sense? Sacrifice. Where we receive nothing here. Where we are thought of as fools for the sake of Christ, rather than reputable. Where we are impoverished for the sake of Christ, rather than made, made rich. Where we are taken advantage of. Where we are scorned and mocked. Thought foolishly of. For the sake of Christ. These are the things that store up treasures in heaven. Not the things where we receive earthly reward. Those receive earthly reward. And as the keeper of the gate said, would you be paid twice? Do you expect God to pay you up there and man to pay you down here? Is that what you want? You can only serve God and mammon. You get one, not two. Jeremiah 9, as Rich read this morning, to, to close, I just want to read this as a reminder. Jeremiah 9, 23 and 24 says, Thus says the Lord, Let not the wise man glory in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man glory in his might. Nor let the rich man glory in his riches. But let him who glories, glory in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord, exercising loving kindness, judgment, and righteousness in the earth. For in these I delight, says the Lord. If you're going to glory, glory in the Lord. He is the Lord. He is the sufficient one. He is the one who is honorable, who is reputable. He is the one the owner of all things. He is the one who is the sovereign over all lands, over all peoples, over all nations. This is what pleases the Lord. To be humble and submissive to the Lord. To declare as your life's song, the Lord, He is God. The Lord, He is God. And this is my true delight. This is where the light of our eye is good, in which we find delight and guidance and instruction. The Lord, He is God. Jesus, whom He has sent. In this, we will discover the secret of true treasures. But we must seek Him. We look to Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith. We are not sufficient unto ourselves, in life or in death. We are saved by faith. We live by faith. 
not by the works of righteousness, but according to His mercy. Lord, help us. Rid us, not of passion. Rid us, Lord, of lust. Do not rid us of desire. Rid us of our carnality. Lord, for each man and woman and child in this room, I pray, Lord, for a spirit of devotion that we would choose Jesus, only Him, and thereby have eternal life, having forsaken what is behind, chasing after what is ahead. In Jesus' name, amen.